we were thinking then about the aspects of the human person. It's a big subject, and there's a lot of terms used in the Bible, terms like body and soul and spirit, and we need to think about them. Let me just make a few general comments about them. The first one I want to say is be careful how you you read these words in the Bible, because none of them are technical words. Um, Very often we use words like soul and spirit as as though it's a kind of technical piece of jargon. And I was doing that in the last session. I was using the word soul like a kind of technical piece of jargon. Actually, there's only one or two places in the Bible where it's used in precisely that way. 1 Peter, chapter 4, that which wars against the soul, and a few other verses. But the word soul is, uh, for, an, for example, a very varied word in its usage. Sometimes it can be used of an animal. It just means life. An animal has, has life. There are places in the Hebrew text of the Bible where even an animal is said to have a soul. Or sometimes, and this, this will perhaps surprise you, sometimes the word soul can mean a corpse. It can mean a dead body. When in the Old Testament it says the number of souls that were smitten by the edge of the sword, it's talking about dead bodies after some battle, but it uses the word soul. So, the word soul is not a technical word and these things have been very much influenced by Plato. Plato made a very sharp, the philosopher Plato made a very sharp distinction between body and soul. For him the soul was totally immaterial, it was good whereas the body was bad, body was evil but the soul is good. That's Platonism. Um, Often Christians think they're being Christians when when they're really being Platonists. But the word soul is, uh, is very flexible in its usage. So don't um, treat, it as, treat it as a piece of jargon. Often it means the whole person. When Hebrews, when Romans 13 verse 1 in the authorised version says that every soul be subject to the powers that be, it doesn't mean you're subject in your soul but your body can do what it's like. You know if, you're, if your body goes at 60 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, it doesn't make a difference, it's only your body. It's, 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 not, it's not referring just to your soul being subject. The word soul there means means the whole person. We do it in English with the word everybody. I hope everybody is enjoying themselves. That don't mean your body is enjoying yourself but your soul or your spirit or your mind is going to sleep. No, no, the word body, everybody, means the whole person. Sometimes we use the word, a word that designates a bit of us to refer to the whole of us. We do it in English in the word everybody. They do it in Greek with the word soul. And even we do that. We, if a ship sinks at sea, we say 40 souls were perished. We, we use that phrase in terms of uh, shipping and uh, accidents at sea. So these, these words are very flexibly used. And if you turn them into a piece of jargon, you will confuse yourself. You'll be, you'll be getting uh, confused in the way in which you read scripture. So there are many of these things, words like body, soul, spirit and so on. The basic principle is that we have to learn to handle ourselves. Uh, There are two or three of these things which are really important, one of which is the body. We're told to mortify the deeds of the body and we're often addressed in the Bible as though our body was a bit separate from us. 
and also we have to be able to handle our conscience and we have to be able to handle, says the Bible, I'm just, I'm just uh, summarizing scripture, we have to be able to help other people in their, in their conscience. Some people might be conscientious about something in an area where we are not conscientious about something. I'll come to that in a moment. So let me just chat with you for a little bit about some of these things. Let, let me begin with the body. But, but I, I warn you that none of these things are technical pieces of jargon. And when we, when we talk about these things, we tend, to, we tend to use jargon, we tighten our language. The, the great mark of the Bible is that the language is loose. Have you ever noticed this? In the Bible, the language is loose, but the logic is tight. The language is loose, but the logic is tight. When you see where it's arguing, it's, it's sort of logical and it makes sense. But the actual vocabulary is loose and varied. There's, there's no, it's not a jargonistic book. The Bible's not a, a jargonistic book. There's scarcely any word in the Bible which is a piece of jargon. Even the word God is not a piece of jargon. You think the word God always has the same meaning, but it doesn't. Remember, Jesus said, if he, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, he's referring to judges. Judges in ancient Israel were called gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, how much more should you call me God, as it says Jesus? But the word, even the word God can be referred to angels or judges. Many of these words in the Bible are very, very... Baptism is, is, is a totally unjargonistic word in the Bible. When, when we use baptism, we think of water, or we think of the baptism of the Spirit. We act as though it's a, a technical term, but it's not. When Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptised with, he's talking about suffering. He's not referring to water or the spirit, he's referring to suffering. So like baptism just means dipping or putting. Don't always read water every time you see the word baptism. You're, you're taking it as a piece of jargon. So the Bible's loose in its language, but tight in its logic and argumentation. So let's think a little bit about the body. First thing one needs to know about the body is that it's not evil in itself. And often in the story of the church, people have been taught to treat the body as though it's evil. And again, this comes from Plato. Plato regarded the body as evil. For Plato, the body was a kind of prison. It was a prison house of the soul. And if the soul could escape the body, it would be much happier. And uh, that's typical Platonism. There's nothing Christian about it. In the Bible, things are not evil just because they're material. And you remember how you have reference in, in some of the New Testament epistles to people who regard anything material as evil. And marriage comes into this. Remember how 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter, what chapter is it? 2 Timothy talks about people who follow doctrines of demons and they forbid marriage. And you may want to ask the question, why, why can't the Pope get married? Why do Roman Catholic priests not get married? Why do people talk about the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary? Well, all of these things come from a hostility to the body. They come from the idea that, the, that anything physical is sinful just because it's physical. But that's not the teaching of Scripture, that's Platonism. And it came into the church a bit. People like Augustine in the early church were converted Platonists. And they brought a lot of Platonist ideas through into their thinking. Some of it got into the church. And some of the ideas that people have about marriage come more from Plato than they do from, from the Bible. In the Bible, anything material is, is wholly good. When God made the worlds in Genesis, he sees this and it's good. And he sees that, it's good. And everything, everything is, is good. The only thing that's said to be not good 
in Genesis is when Adam was not married. It was not good that man should be alone. The only thing said to be not good is not, ma- is not, is not being married, but being unmarried is said to be not good. And when Eve is brought to Adam, he says, oh, now, at last, I mean, the poor guy's been waiting for a woman for a long time, at last, bone of my bones and flesh is purely uh, something that you celebrate, it's purely good. Can you imagine the Pope saying, oh, now, at last. Can, can <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it leads to, it leads to problems. I mean, you get uh, in areas where Catholic priests are not watched over very carefully. You get local children looking suspiciously rather like the local Catholic priests. And, uh, and uh, Luther, Luther used to complain that the monasteries were full of immorality. This, this, this kind of enforced celibacy doesn't work. But it's, not, it's not the matter or the material or the marriage or the sexuality or the physicality. That's not the problem. The problem is the nature of the heart. The problem is sin. It's not the matter. It's what you do with the matter. It's not the sexuality. It's what you do with the sexuality. The sin doesn't reside in the thing, in the material thing. It resides in the human heart and what we do with the material things. So we must never get any kind of doctrine which is really implying that things that are sinful because they're physical. Uh, It's totally unbiblical. And it's also Platonism when you think that one day we're going to be in heaven and we'll be like ghosts floating around in the sky somewhere playing our guitar. that's, That's more Plato than the Bible. The Bible's ultimate hope for the human race is a new heavens and a new earth and a new body. We'll be able to have raised, glorified bodies and the new Jerusalem comes down. When you think about heaven, don't think about it as some kind of ethereal world with spirits and ghosts floating around singing songs. No, no. Think of heaven as this world glorified. Think of heaven with everything good and clean and good and beautiful in this world, damaged by sin, but one day purified, glorified, exalted, everything good about our world, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the ultimate hope of the Christian. It's much more exciting than being a ghost floating around in the sky. But uh, the ultimate hope is physical. It wasn't for Plato. Plato didn't, he wasn't looking for any kind of earth or body. He, he wanted to escape the body and be some spirit somewhere. Uh, Socrates, when he compulsorily committed suicide by order of the Athenian state, he was looking forward to heaven, but it was a totally non-material heaven. It was a totally spiritual thing, spiritual meaning non-material. And it wasn't because of any saviour, it was because he just believed that the soul was so great. It was the nature of the soul that was Plato's hope of heaven. Our hope of heaven is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not the nature of the soul. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that makes us hope to get to glory. And that glory is physical. The new heavens and a new earth and a new body to be on that new earth, that new world. It's all very physical and we will enjoy a physical kind of life in the world that's to come offered to us in scripture. So the body is not evil in itself and we should never ill-treat it We should discipline the body. We must keep it under control, says the Bible. I beat my body black and blue, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But it's not ill-treating the body. Sometimes people think they should ill-treat the body. Fasting is often badly used. Fasting is very popular among unspiritual people. Have you ever noticed that? Muslims fast a lot. Catholics fast a lot. You get people who are not specially spiritual people. They can be just nominal Christians or they can be in some religion, Hindu, Islam. All sorts of people fast as though there's something 
advantageous in going on hunger strike. That, that, that's not really the biblical teaching in Scripture. If you gather all the references to fasting in the Bible, there's about 40 of them, if you gather all of the references to fasting in the Bible, you'll find that the vast majority of them are fasting for one day. You are busy in the things of the Lord, you don't have time to eat, so you just don't bother. Happens to me when I go into a bookshop. But uh, <laughs> you know, you're praying, or you're doing something spiritual, or you're preaching, or you skip breakfast because you've got to go somewhere and do something, and you just can't bother to eat. You're too busy about the things of God. Or you want to pray, you give, you give up food for the day. It won't do you any harm, it might do you some good. You fast for one day because you're busy about the things of God. Most of the references to fasting are for one day. Occasionally, if you look at those 40 or so references, there'll be reference to fasting for three days. When something is really demanding your attention, you might stop eating for three days while you focus upon the things of the Lord. There's not much about fasting beyond that. Most references to fasting are one day or three days if you really need to give yourself to seeking God or something which really requires your attention. Forget, forget to eat for two days. There are occasions in the Bible when you fast for seven days. But if you study them, there are always situations where you don't want to eat anyway. When, when you, you lose a family member, somebody dies, and you're so sad about it, you're not hungry for a week. So it's very natural to go without food for a while just, just because you're preoccupied with your grief or your sorrow. Those seven-day fasts are normally when there's something which would make you not want to eat anyway. There's one occasion in the Bible where Daniel fasts for three weeks. But if you read it, it's a partial fast. He eats, he eats lightly. He eats a little bit. Just keeps himself going. Barely. For three weeks. Alright, there's that one reference. There are three times in the Bible where someone fasts for 40 days. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Those three men fasted for 40 days. They all had help of angels. When it, when it says Jesus fasted, the angels came and ministered to them, says, says Mark's Gospel. If you fast for 40 days, well, God bless you. I just hope the angels help you. In the, in, the Bible, in the Bible, there's no special virtue in asceticism. Jesus implied that we would fast. Jesus didn't condemn fasting. He just took it for granted we would fast. He said, when you fast, don't let people know. Just, just be normal, be your ordinary selves. Um, but remember they criticised Jesus for not fasting remember they came to Jesus and said would John the, John the Baptist's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast that you, you don't seem to, your disciples don't seem to be doing any fasting and Jesus answered them you don't fast when in a marriage you don't fast when the bridegroom's with you you go to a wedding you're getting married next Saturday you don't say well next Saturday day of prayer and fasting I'm getting married you'll come don't, don't eat <laughs> You don't, you don't, you don't fast in the marriage. You feast and you celebrate and you dance and you drink lots of wine. And Jesus, Jesus' first miracle was three hundred gallons of wine. How about that? <laughs> so the moral, the moral is: don't get ascetic. Don't think you've got to sort of persecute the body to be spiritual. No, there's, no, there's nothing Christian about that. There's a lot of it in the Christian church. It's not as bad as it used to be, but uh, there's still a lot around. You know the story when one day. Luther, before he got saved, when he was a Roman Catholic monk, before he got saved, he didn't come to chapel. In the Roman Catholic monastery, Luther didn't turn up one day. And they said, well, what's happened to Luther? He's not here. So they went to his monastic cell. They found Luther unconscious on the floor. And he had taken some kind of whip, and he had lashed himself and damaged himself and beaten himself with his whip to the point where he collapsed and was unconscious on the floor. 
That's what they did in Roman Catholic monasteries in the 16th century. You, you've got to discipline yourself and take vows of poverty and this, that and the other. Chastity by which they meant not getting married. That's asceticism. Remember what Colossians says. Colossians 2 talks about people like this. It was there in the New Testament times. And Colossians chapter 2 says, These things are of no value. This self-made religion, this asceticism, Colossians 2.23, and severity to the body, it is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It won't deal with the sinful nature. It won't deal with temptation. You can go into a monastery and deprive yourself of all sorts of things, but you take yourself there, and, and you take the flesh there, you take your human nature there. You used to quarrel with your boss, boss in, in, in the office, now you'll quarrel with your fellow monks. But you're still there, you're still taking your own heart there. If you're unloving, you'll be unloving in the monastery. I think of a, an early church monk who retired into the desert to be a monk away from civilization. And he said, I retired into the desert and I found myself surrounded by dancing girls. What he meant was, he went into the desert where there, was no, where there were no temptations or girls or wine or women or song around, but his imagination, he's imagining all these dance. I went into the desert and I was surrounded by dancing girls. He's talking about his own imagination, his own heart, his own, his own temptations within himself. You can go into a desert and in your mind you're surrounded by dancing girls, as some early church father said. You see, it's not, it's not our situation, it's our hearts. And you don't, you don't deal with the hearts by severity to the body. Uh, so don't push, you discipline the body. Paul says, I beat my body black and blue, 1 Corinthians 9. Lest having preached to others, I should be rejected and have a useless ministry. You discipline your body, you don't get lazy, you don't pamper the body, you don't, you don't, get, you don't treat it with luxury all the time so it gets soft and, and careless. You discipline your body and keep control of your body. But you don't badly treat your body. You don't deprive yourself of sleep. Uh, I don't think people do this in Britain very much, but in Kenya, where I come from, Christians are always depriving themselves of sleep. And they fast too much. I, I, I spent my time in Kenya persuading people not to fast. And incidentally, those, those scriptures that say, this kind come not out by prayer and fasting, none of them are genuine. They're only in the King James Version. In the third century, people transcribing the scriptures and copying out the manuscripts were all monks. And every time they read in the manuscript, this kind comes not out by prayer, or Paul, or Paul was doing something by prayer, or Cornelius was in the upper room prayer, they added the words, and fasting. Those words are not original. You won't, you won't find them in any modern translation. Jesus didn't say, this kind comes not out except by prayer and fasting. He said, this kind comes not out except by prayer. All he said. It was some monk in the third century that added, and fasting. And it comes about, about nine times, I think, in the, in the various manuscripts. And it's all in the King James Version. The King James Version used manuscripts that weren't all that reliable. And a few phrases shouldn't be there. Any modern translation will not, will not have those words. They'll be dropped out of the ESV or the NIV or any modern translation. will not have those words. So don't, don't be quoting the King James Version all the time. Realise there's a, an ascetic element to the King James Version coming from the monastic manuscripts. So we are to discipline the body and we are to remember that the body is not yet redeemed. And this, is, this is important with regard to healing. We often find people claiming a little bit too much healing. And of course, we, we believe, I hope we believe, in healing. God can heal the body. But you often get... Emphasis on healing which go too far. 
And although the Christian church believes in miracles and God can heal the body, touch the body at any point, and he's in direct contact with our world and can do miracles immediately and directly, yet the Christian church is not a healing cult. The Christian church must not overclaim. We mustn't say we we can claim healing in the same way that we can claim forgiveness. Remember Romans 8.23, we are waiting for the redemption of the body. The body is not yet saved. That's why sin can come to us through the body. That's why we can be tempted. We still have a fallen body. And uh, we have have contact to the sinful world because the body is not yet redeemed. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8.23. That's why we have to mortify the deeds of the body that we may live. Romans 8.12. Romans 8.10 says the body is dead because of sin. The body is dead. We're not alive in our body. Our physical side is not yet redeemed. We're waiting for new bodies. We're waiting for the last phase of our salvation. And the last phase of our salvation is the resurrection body. You're given a new body with no sin in it. And once you're given a new body, you'll never sin again. You'll never be tempted again. You'll be, it'll be impossible for you to sin once you have a, a resurrection body. You'll never, never sin again. You won't even be tempted. But you haven't got there yet. We are waiting for the last phase of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, says Romans chapter 8. So you mustn't push healing too far, as though you can switch on healing. Have you noticed that healing emphases come and go? 30 years ago we had it a lot through the the Wimber movement, the John Wimber movement and the vineyard churches 20, 30 years ago, stressing that a lot. And then it faded a bit and it it went out because it wasn't completely working. People people wouldn't just switch on healing all the time. They they tried, but it, it didn't really work too much. And so it faded. But uh, currently it's coming back again. And it's coming back again because of Bill Johnson in, in Reading, R-E-D-D-I-N-G, Reading in California. So these things come and go. Well, the biblical teaching is that, that God has immediate access to his world and can heal at any point. But it's not biblical teaching that you can switch on healing. You can't switch on it. You can't claim healing. Don't use the word claim in connection with healing. And of course, it doesn't work. You get, you get many, many people that try to claim healing, and they, and they can't do it. Miracles are, are sovereign. Miracles come when God, as and when God gives them. And these various verses that people quote don't mean quite what they make them to mean. When the, when the Bible says that um, the prayer of faith will save the sick, the prayer of faith is not a thing that we can switch on. The prayer of faith is when something is given to you, when you know God's will and you have an assurance that God is about to do something. You're given a prayer of faith. It's what you get in the book of Acts when Peter heals the man at the gate beautiful. Peter is going to the temple every day and that man is laid at the, door, at the gate of the temple every day. So Peter passes that person every single day. But he's not healed him before. But one day he goes by and the man begs for some money. And Peter says to him, well, I don't have any silver and gold, but I do know that the Lord's about to do something. He fixes his eye upon him. He sees that he's being called to do something. And at that point, he could do what he couldn't do before. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he knows this is going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's been given the prayer of faith. Well, there are verses like that, but, they, but none of them imply that we can switch on things. We can't switch on things. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. 
Well, I've said more about that than I intended to. Maybe, maybe you especially needed it. But uh, you, you, you can't switch on things that are miraculous. They're given sovereignly. There's such a thing as the prayer of faith. People say, isn't there healing in the atonement? Hasn't Jesus brought our healing so that we can just claim it? Well, the answer is Jesus brought everything. Jesus has brought our resurrection body. Jesus has brought our final glory. Jesus has paid by his blood. He's paid for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But he does not mean that we can switch it on and take it right now. You can't take all that God has got lined up for you before the time. So the fact that healing has been bought, which which is true, does not mean that you can switch it on. It only means that when there's some kind of miracle, it's coming by virtue of the blood of Christ. That's all that means. It doesn't mean anything more than that. So that's the teaching concerning the fallenness of the body. And then the Bible teaches that the, the body is a channel of attack. Sin comes through us because we are still in the body. And this is why Paul can say things like, mortify the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, Romans 8.12, if by the Spirit, Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, things are coming to us and tempting us because of this fallen side of our nature. There's a fallen aspect to us, which is the body. And although we're in the kingdom of God and we're under grace and we can't be condemned, the body, we're still in the body. And, and this means that we still can be tempted. We're not totally and utterly redeemed as like glorified angels in heaven. We're not like that. And so things can come to us through our fallenness. And it's not just referring to physical sins. It's not talking about sexuality or gluttony or physical sins. It's all sin. All sin comes to us because we're not totally redeemed. We're still in a fallen body. And therefore we have to mortify the deeds of the body that we might live, which, which I take to mean that you handle temptations and things coming to you through this fullness of the body, and it leads to life, it leads to an anointing, it leads to power, you, you live spiritually. If you sow to the Spirit, you shall back from the Spirit, receive, inherit eternal life. You get life and energy coming from God if you deal with things that are, as it were, tempting you and dragging you down. If by the Spirit. What does it mean in practice when it says, if by the Spirit? What does that mean in practice? I think people often just say, well, the Spirit is there, you can do it. Well, I think it's a bit more than that. What does it mean to do, thing, to do things by the Spirit? I think it's largely a matter of joy. It's largely a matter of rejoicing. And you know that the Holy Spirit is there. And you ask for the Lord to lead you and bless you and pour out the Spirit upon you. And you begin to rejoice. The, the great mark of the Christian life is joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When you are rejoicing, it's not so difficult to deal with things that are attacking you. You, you strangle sins, you kill them, you murder them, you, you conquer them, you beat them to death, you mortify, you kill these things which are coming. The only time you can be violent is be violent against your sins. Mortify the deeds of the body. And do it by the Spirit, which I think largely means just rejoicing in God. You, you realise who you are and how you've been saved and how you're under a kingdom of grace. You remind yourself of who you are in the Lord and you get yourself rejoicing. Remember the Bible calls upon us to get ourselves rejoicing. Paul says rejoice. He's commanding us rejoice in the Lord. Again I say 
rejoice, it says Paul in Philippians. To say the same thing to you might, it's not grievous to me, I'm happy to say it again. Again, I say, rejoice. The Bible's always commanding us to keep up a high level of rejoicing and joy. Don't get gloomy, don't get heavy, don't get legalistic. They're rejoicing in the Lord. That's really where the Spirit is working. If by the Spirit, if by this rejoicing in God, you mortify the deeds of the body. It's not difficult to mortify the deeds of the body so much when you're rejoicing in God. The joy of the Lord is your strength, as a verse in the Old Testament says. So we, can, we have to handle sin and uh, come through, through the body, we have to discipline ourselves, we have to fight it. It's an everlasting battle, don't ever expect it to go away. It will never cease to the day you die. You won't get the holiday. God will never say today, there's no sin around today, you don't need to fight today. You won't ever get the holiday every single day of your life. You've got to deal with sin. Sometimes, some days are worse than others. There's such a thing as the evil day. Remember, Ephesians says, stand strong in the Lord so that you may be able to resist him in the evil day. There's such a thing as an evil day. But, uh, but there's no such thing as a day where you're not in the flesh anymore. There's no such thing as a day where you don't need Jesus. There's no such thing as a day where you don't need to ask the Lord to forgive you your sins. There's never going to be a day when you don't need the blood of Christ. You're never going to wake up one day and say to the Lord, Lord, I, today, I don't need you today. Sorry, Lord, I'm, I'm all right today. I don't need you today. I can, I, can, I can live without your blood today. You are never going to be in that position. You will never have a day where you don't need the blood of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in your life. So stay close to God and keep rejoicing every day and mortify the deeds of the body that you might live, that you might know this, this, this lubricating anointing this power, this energy coming from God, this life coming from God, because you are dealing with things which block the flow of the life of God in your soul. And then the Bible tells us to glorify God in your body. Whatever you do, says Paul, glorify God. Live to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us to glorify God in our bodies. Keep your body healthy, as healthy as you can. Look after it, don't pamper it. Don't uh, make it get soft, but uh, glorify God in your body. Don't you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You are not your own, you are bought by a price. So glorify God in your body, in your very physicality and what you're doing in life with your hands and your feet and your eyes and your brain, this physical side of your life, live to the glory of God. Glorify God in your body. And uh, in that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is dealing with immorality, dealing with sexual sin. He doesn't say, be careful of sexual sin, you might get AIDS. He doesn't say, beware of sexual sin, you might disgrace yourself and get caught. He says, handle it positively. Realise your body belongs to God. Glory, glory, in all that you do, glorify God in your body. Don't do anything with your body, which you know will dishonour the Lord. So that's the Bible's teaching about the body. And then we're told that judgment day will involve the body. In the judgment, we are raised in the body and we shall all appear before the judgment seat of, of Christ. We'll all appear before God, says the Bible. And um, we shall give account of the Lord. I'm just looking up a reference. We shall account to the Lord. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due 
for what he has done in the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We receive what is due for what we've done in our body. We are raised in the body to give an account of what we did with the body. The, body, the judgment day is always physical. The judgment is always physically appearing before God to give an account of what we did with the body. That's why even the lost are raised from the dead. That's why the Bible talks about a judgment to condem- uh, being raised, a resurrection to condemnation. Even the unsaved will be raised from the dead. Doesn't mean they go to heaven, doesn't mean they get, they get saved. Doesn't mean that they have a body of glory. The Bible doesn't tell us much about the bodies of the unsaved. But, uh, but even the unsaved are raised in the body and we are judged in the body and we're judged according to what we did with our bodies, according to, to Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due for what we've done in the body. That's the teaching about judgment day. And the final judgment, the final judgment takes place at the final resurrection. There's a judgment after death. It's appointed unto men once to die and after that, the judgment. There's a judgment at death. But it's not the final judgment. The final judgment is when everything comes to light, the whole human race is raised and all, all complaints and quarrels and conflicts are settled. Justice is done and we all are blamed or praised or we suffer loss or we we are rewarded if any person's works are burnt up he shall suffer loss 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if any person's works abide if they survive the examination and the fire of God if any person's works abide he shall receive a reward this is the time for loss and gain and reward and, and, and judgment it's when we appear in the body, and it's a final judgment day where justice is seen to be is done and seen to be done. We shall have no complaints against God. Everything you're complaining about about God in the last day, you'll find God will give an account of Himself, and justice will be done. But it all will take place in the body. It will always all take place physically before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the body will be glorified. The, the body of the saved, the bodies of the saved will be finally glorified. Our ultimate hope is physical. And you can speculate and uh, ask questions about what it's going to be like in that final glory. I I recommend the book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. A-A-L-C-O-R-N. Heaven by Randy Alcorn. our, Our final heaven is very physical and uh, we'll have new powers. We'll, our bodies will be conformed to the body of Jesus. And the body of Jesus had powers that he did not have before the resurrection. You remember on one occasion, the disciples are meeting in the upper room and Jesus appears. He just appears. The doors are locked. But from nowhere, Jesus appears. The body of Jesus could go through locked doors. Indeed, the resurrection involves the same thing. When you read the account of the resurrection in John, 20, John, John chapter 20, you'll find that the grave clothes are still there in position. and They're not all thrown all over the places. The body of Jesus disturbs them all. Jesus passed through the, the judgment, judgment, the uh, grave clothes. And the stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. 
the stone was rolled away so that they could go here and say, he's not here. It was to let the witnesses in, not, not, to, keep the, not to let the body of Jesus out. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away to get out. He could pass through things that were physical. And I don't know how it all works, but uh, what I do know is we, our bodies will have new powers. We will be able to do things that we can't do at the moment. And, the, and Philippians 3.20 says that our bodies are conformed unto the body of his glory by the power which he has to subject all things to himself. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. He transforms our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We have new powers in the new body just as Jesus did when he was raised to final glory. So that's the Bible's teaching about the body. It's very different from, from Platonism. It's very different from the kind of uh, Platonist Christianity which we inherited from the Catholic Church or from Augustine or from these people who were influenced by Plato. It's very materialistic. Our, our faith is very materialistic. You know, these things took place on planet Earth. Jesus died upon a cross. His, ra- his body was raised from the dead. Our salvation is going to be the salvation of the body. Our, our gospel is very materialistic, very physical. God made our world. It's not, the world wasn't made by the devil. Not that God made spiritual things and the devil made material things. God made the whole us. The whole, the whole of human existence was coming from the creation of God. So the physical is good and clean and right. Everything God made is good, it's good, it's good. It's all exceedingly good. I think bad about physicality. That's the teaching of Scripture. Well, let me say a little bit more about the conscience. If, if we've said something about the body, uh, we could think about other things. We could think about the mind. Uh, I won't deal with that, but that's another topic we could deal with, the mind. And uh, once again, that's uh, very important in the in the Bible, don't, don't believe people that tell you to switch off your mind. Don't listen to people who say, never mind about your mind, just trust God. And they want you to switch off your mind in order to trust God. No, no, that's not biblical. In scripture, you don't switch off your mind, you switch on your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, says 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We're to use our mind. And the Bible argues with us and reasons with us. So the mind is given honourable treatment in the scriptures. We have to be careful of intellectualism. We have to be careful of enjoying intellectual things too much. We mustn't turn our churches into universities. You get churches which neglect doctrine. And then one day they change their mind and they say, no, no, we need some Christian doctrine. Suddenly they start reading books and doctrine and teaching and so on. Before you know where you are, the church is like a university. We mustn't turn our churches into universities. We mustn't be intellectual. In, in a wrong way. Preachers mustn't just be entertaining the intellectuals. Some of you have heard me say, the worst thing you could ever say to me after a sermon is to come to me and say, oh, thank you, that was so interesting. That is the worst thing you can say to me. I, I get depressed for the rest of the day. On the, can you imagine people on the day of Pentecost when Peter's preaching, and they come to Peter afterwards when he's preaching, you crucified him, God has highly exalted him, and they come to Jesus and they say, thank you, Peter, that was so interesting. Can you imagine that happening on the day of Pentecost? No, no, what happens upon the day of Pentecost is they cry out in alarm, and they interrupt the preaching, and they say, oh, oh, what should we do? What should we do? Ah, oh, that's, that's the reaction I want. When people cry out and say, what should we do? Well, then you're getting somewhere. 
And they say, oh yeah, very interesting, you failed, you failed, you're getting nowhere. You mustn't turn the church into a place where, of intellectual interest. And when we get interested in Christian doctrine, which is good and right, we mustn't go to an extreme where we turn the church into a purely intellectual community and we sit there just listening to great sermons and we have magnificent expositions. It's all, it's all intellectual. And we read all the good books and we listen to tapes and cassettes and videos. But it, it's like being a student at university. The church is not meant to be like a university. And it's the common, it was the common people who heard him gladly. I like what Luther said. Luther preaching, he often used to preach in the parish church of Wittenberg in Germany. And he used to say, when I preach, I'm not watching Philip. He, he means Philip Melanchthon, the theologian. I'm not watching Jonas. He means Jonas, Jonas Justice, one of the professors. I, I'm looking at the servant girls. That, that remark could be misunderstood, but uh, it, what, what he... What he what he means is, you know, the, the, the common people who are scarcely educated, people, very simple people, young girls who have just been allowed to come to church from, from being serving in some, some mansion somewhere. Luther wants to help them. He says if, if Melanchthon's, if Philip is offended, the door is open. He can go if he wants to. He's not, I don't care about him. I'm trying to help these, these needy people. Every preacher should think that way. And you're preaching, you don't focus on the clever. That can be a bit of a nuisance. You focus upon the not so clever. You, you focus upon people who need the most. If, if Philip is annoyed, well, the door is open, he can go. But, but you, you want to win the people who need the gospel the most. And Jesus, he would win tax collectors and prostitutes from the streets and, and people who, who, who are called sinners. You know, when the gospel talks about sinners, it means people who weren't allowed in the synagogue. The Pharisees were talking about sinners. They mean certain people are so disgusting. When they come to the synagogue, they say, well, we, we, we don't want you. You're a sinner. And they won't let those people in the synagogue. Jesus went after those very people that the, the synagogues didn't want. And he wasn't giving them learned lectures. He was speaking to their hearts and trying to rescue them and save them. A doctor, he, say, he says, a doctor doesn't, doesn't heal, the, right, doesn't heal the, the well. It's the sick the doctor goes after. I came not to, to call the righteous, I came to call sinners, people in real trouble. To re- I came to call sinners to repentance. So I'm um, dealing with the mind. Don't, don't turn the, your church into a kind of university. We must go after Christian doctrine. Here am I spending hours teaching you Christian doctrine. But, but we mustn't so love doctrine that um, it gets to something where it's, it's like intellectual entertainment. It's so interesting and we are studying, like studying Shakespeare or doing crossword puzzles. You really like the intellectual excitement. Don't, don't let a church ever go that way. So there's two things you can go wrong with, two ways in which you can go wrong with the mind. The other is to neglect it and, sit and you say, well, I don't, want, I don't want all this intellectual stuff, I just want to praise God, live for Jesus and sing, sing songs and uh, enjoy, enjoy the worship. You are playing down the mind. Don't do that. But don't make the opposite mistake. Don't, don't make the mistake of so exalting the intellectual that you just become intellectualist and cold and dry. Those churches don't exist, that don't, don't, don't uh, prosper. I had a girl in Nairobi come to see me a few weeks ago about the church she went to. <coughs> I'd, ne- I'd never been to that church. It was in Nairobi for 20, 30 years. I knew about it, but I'd never been there. But uh, she talked to me a bit about it and some of the problems it had. And then I said to her, I reckon your church has nothing but students in it. And she said to me, yeah, you're right, how did you know that? 
<laughs> and I, it's because I knew the pastor. The pastor is a very intellectual guy, great believer in doctrine, kind of came from a famous seminary in the States, which is so, so proud of his doctrine. I, I knew that uh, he would be a very intellectual guy. And so I knew that church would only have students in it. And it was true. It was packed with university students. Nobody else came, just university students. Well, you, you, you could tell even, even without going there. You, you, could, you could guess. And that's one of the dangers of, of expository preaching. You, you get people who say, no, we must, we must preach expository. We must, we must go through books of the Bible and really expound scripture. Well, that's true, and I, and I believe it. But I think a lot that's called expository preaching is not expository preaching at all. It is expository lecturing. And when you use the word expository preaching, the emphasis should be on the second word, not the first word. It doesn't matter very much whether it's perfect exposition. It does matter whether it's preaching. It's got to be preaching. It's got to pierce people's hearts. It can, it can, be, it can be mistaken expositorily. I remember preaching a sermon once way back in days when I was in Johannesburg. And, the, and I preached a certain text of scripture. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. And the day after I preached it, I realised that my interpretation was wrong. I preached on a Sunday, and then the Monday I decided what I said was wrong, which is a bit depressing for a preacher. But <laughs> the text was Hebrews chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And it was Christmas Day, and I preached the gospel on Christmas Day. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus coming and uh, saving the world, and a baby being born, and the angels coming. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And I preached a, an evangelistic sermon. The next day, I sort of realised that's not what the text says. The text does not say, how will you escape if you reject the gospel? It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's not about people getting saved. It's about Christians who are saved neglecting the salvation that they've got. And I realised uh, my interpretation was not right. But I wasn't too bothered. And I'll tell you why. Somebody got saved on that Sunday. <laughs> if a little boy gets saved for a bad sermon of mine, I don't mind. <laughs> You see, the preaching is more important than the exposition. The exposition might not be perfect. You might even make a mistake. What matters is not the, perfect, the perfectiveness, the, the, the perfection of your exegesis, your interpretation. What matters is whether God the Spirit is there, whether someone's being saved, whether it's piercing anybody's heart, whether anybody's crying out, what should we do? So you can make mistakes with the mind in two directions. You can play it down or you can play it up. You can be anti-intellectual or you can make a kind of God out of the intellect. No, go somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. You expound the scriptures, but you pray for the Spirit. You pray for the power and the anointing of the Spirit. Remember how Paul put it, he said, our word came to you, not in word only, but also in power, in much conviction, in the Holy Spirit. And we, we became models for you, and you modelled yourself on us. It was the word, it was the Spirit, and people often talk these days as though there's two things, the Word and the Spirit. I'm sure some of you have heard that phrase. It's not quite right. It's not two things, it's three things. It is the Word and the Spirit and what it did. You know what manner of people we were and you model yourself in us and it changed your life. It wasn't the Word and the Spirit, it was the Word and the Spirit and life. A changed life. It's not two things, it's three things. So the, the intellect and the word and the extras of scripture, it comes in there somewhere, but you mustn't turn the church into a university. You mustn't be too intellectual. 
Well, there you are. You see, I wanted to preach on conscience and I've ended up preaching on minds. But, <laughs> but uh, that's what's happened. And it's a sign that uh, the Lord's here by the Spirit. And sometimes a preacher doesn't preach what he intends to say, but the Lord knows what he's doing and people need to hear what he does say. So that happens sometimes when you preach.